This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I had no idea when I started working for the um, hunting regulations uh, organization here in, CP, uh, here in Colorado at CPW that I would ever, ever end up being a hunter. <laughs> like, my friends are like, who are you? We do not know who you are. <laughs> um, but my coworkers all convinced me and I drank the Kool-Aid. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors Podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. I'm happy today to have Crystal Egley with me. Crystal's someone I met, I don't know, Crystal, what was that, three, four years ago, maybe, when you were still at Parks and Wildlife? And Crystal used to work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and she was doing all kinds of communication stuff, and has since moved on, and we'll talk about that. But how's it going in general, Crystal? It is going really well. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. Good. I like that enthusiasm. Um, Well, let me just tell folks a little bit about you first, and then we'll jump in. Crystal grew up in Vermont, spent a lot of time outdoors. Maybe we can unpack a little bit more what that was like when she was young uh, as a kid. And uh, she actually started doing some film school and moved to L.A. for a while which is interesting because she's an outdoors person for sure and quickly had to get away from that. Maybe we'll talk about that too, but uh, went to work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife after a while and um, has just dove in head first into some of this stuff. She's a hunter education instructor. Uh, She became an adult onset hunter and documented it. Um, People may have seen that. Um, She's a board member for Hunters of Color. We had Jimmy Flat on 
two or three episodes ago, folks may have heard. And so she's just an all-around outdoor enthusiast, and now she is has started this new organization called Inclusive Journeys with her partner. And I'll let her explain that a little bit more, exactly what the goals and aspirations are of that group, uh, so I don't incorrectly paraphrase, but uh, let's jump in a little, Crystal. Uh, first, you know, just just tell folks, I know you grew up in, in Vermont and, and you got out a lot, but what was what was your upbringing like as far as the outdoors go? And and we always get to start these things with saying what we've been doing outside lately. So maybe add that in. For sure. First of all, buckle up, because uh, as a woman of color over here, I uh, inject that into everything I talk about because it uh, is directly impacting everything that I do. So uh, just we're going to be on a little bit of a diversity ride here for a little bit. Um, so I love fishing. I grew up uh, fishing in Vermont uh, with my dad. That's an interesting story, which I can get to in a little bit. But that ties directly into what I've been doing lately. It's been doing that Colorado spring thing here where it has a blizzard and then it's like 74 degrees the next day. And then like two days later, it's like negative seven. So uh, this past weekend, I actually took my daughter uh, fishing and got some really amazing memories. Like, uh, gosh, she loved the net. We had this giant net and, um, that was actually handmade by my friend and she just loved netting the fish. She's going to be three in April and, uh, watching her take joy and just going hand first in for that fish with like no hesitation, just brought back so many memories from my childhood doing that. And, uh, there's something special about seeing a kid not hesitate around um, fish on the line, right? Like there's something special when they just go in to grab it and hold it up <laughs> for that photo or just that smile um, without that that fear or disgust or anything like that that is often taught. So seeing that in her now that she's like just barely old enough to to appreciate fishing for fishing's sake um, was... Ugh chills. So, yeah. Awesome. Did you bring any home? Are these keepers or, or, or releasers? No, so not to knock St. Rain State Park fish for food. Um, I have tried them. Um, I am not one who generally usually takes home fish to eat. I've done it a few times, but I, I rather just catch and release, um, you know, as little contact as possible, that sort of thing, unless I'm specifically going out. And when I go out specifically, I'm lo usually looking for brook trout. Oh my gosh, those taste so good. It's like fish candy, like, which sounds weird, but yeah, rookies are so good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like to smoke them myself. And I keep messing up, Crystal. And I, I used to start every podcast saying what, what I've been doing outside and what our guests have been doing outside. And then now oh. I kind of get a little far along and go, oh, yeah, we probably should do that. But kind of got a little yours. I'll, I'll, I'll make mine quick. It's my kid's spring yeah, break last week. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my kid's spring break last week. So we went down to the desert in Arizona and ran around with the cactus and the dogs got cactus all in them and all kinds of stuff, you know, but we had a great time, soaked up a little sun, which was needed. And I, uh, went eight 
days without looking at a computer or a TV or any kind of a screen. So that was the biggest, what? most awesome thing. So are you okay? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm excellent. <laughs> as good <laughs> as I can be. <laughs> uh, are there any side effects? Are you like twitching? Like, yeah, there's side effects when you open the computer pocket? back up. Yeah. When you get the computer back open, then you're like, oh, the side effect is the is the kind of jet lag, if you will, from that. You're like, oh, yeah. But uh, let's let's go back to you. Um, so you grew up in Vermont, and and you mm -hmm. got outside a lot, and then it and then you went to L.A. Vermont yeah. to L.A. That much must have been kind of a crazy shock. Talk about that a little. Yeah, growing up in Vermont, all I wanted to do was get out and go to the big city. I went to college in Boston, and that was like my first experience um, spending any time besides like a field trip um, to a big city. And I thought that all cities were like Boston, um, pretty small. You could walk across Boston, you know, you can you can do a whole loop around all the boroughs and stuff. Um, there's lots of green space um, here and there in Boston. Um, and I was like, oh, that's probably what LA is gonna be like. You know, <laughs> you just drive a little bit and you could be back in the New England mountains, you know, <laughs> or at least a small town. Um, and it turns out Los Angeles is nothing like that. Um, mad respect for anybody who lives in Los Angeles and loves it, but it was just not for me. Um, and, but I thought that I had to be there to pursue my uh, work in the film industry. I was very big into post-production editing for film and television there. And so I thought that's what, what I just had to do. And it turns out that the outdoors is in me. Like it is in me. And I just started getting more and more depressed no matter what, like I was only getting out backpacking maybe twice a year. Memorial Day, Labor Day, maybe a 4th of July in there because uh, that's around my birthday. But other than that, like that was it. Um, I just thought that being in L.A., there would be so many more opportunities to go out and be in nature where honestly, I'm more comfortable. I, I started saying this TMI, but now I own it. I am more comfortable going to the bathroom outside than inside. So uh, that's like my level of outdoorsy. Um, so <laughs> Los Angeles, not that vibe. Um, but 10 years later, I was just done. I burned out. And my partner and I decided to use our honeymoon fund, actually, to instead use it to move to Colorado. And now we live uh, in the Denver metro area and there's jobs here and there's also that outdoor element. We can get to the mountains. We can go downhill skiing. We can go fishing. We can go fishing literally like right over there, even though we're in the suburbs. I'm pointing for people. I forgot that people can't see me. Um, <laughs> we can go fly fishing like five minutes from our house, right? Even though we're in uh, the metro area. We can also go out to the backcountry and uh, be there in 45 minutes, right? In LA, we could drive for three or four hours and still be in LA. <laughs> so <laughs> um, yeah, it's it, it, it just was a whole change of life. And I think that making sure the outdoors yeah. is, is part of your everyday life, even if that's a small patch of of grass in your front yard or going to a national park or going into the back country, um, whatever your vibe is, you got to find that so that 
you don't lose the th only thing that nature can give you, whatever that is. I'm not sure how to define it, but <laughs> if you, whatever oh, level a... you uh, is what you got to find. That's a good answer. The access to the outdoors for everyone is just so critical. You know, I, yeah. makes me sad to think that anybody can't go spend some time outdoors and, and outdoors in a place, you know, where there's actually some birds and some critters and some things roaming around. So, well, that, yeah, I that, think that's good. So I got to ask you too. What's that? Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to add that. I think the outdoors can be defined differently for different folks. So for me growing up literally in the middle of the woods, uh, in a house surrounded completely by trees, that the outdoors means something for me, but um, a park near the side of the highway can be just as much outdoors sure. for someone as being deep in the mountain woods is for me. So whatever sure. the outdoors is for folks. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to ask too, did you just come to Colorado cold Turkey or did you, did you like get a job and then come or did you just say, we got to get to Colorado? Cause so many people oh. just go and see what happens. Uh, yeah, my partner is a big, big planner and he was trying to make spreadsheets and smart decisions. And finally, I guess I just convinced him, uh, <laughs> just to go. And, uh, we had a friend out here with a giant house who let us stay with her rent free in a room, uh, with our two cats at the time, <laughs> we were just kind of like stuck in a room. We were going around searching for jobs. I wanted to completely change careers. I was like done with film and television. But then I saw a job opening at Colorado Parks and Wildlife in the marketing section for a videographer. And I was like, you know what? Only thing I'm qualified for, I guess. And so I got it. And oh my goodness, that completely changed my life. Completely changed my life. Um, my job there for five years was filming anything about the outdoors, hunting, fishing, hiking, um, conservation work. I could just call up biologists and be like, what do you have going on? Um, and they'd be like, well, we're going to go color some elk tomorrow. Want to come? And I would just hop in the truck, drive out there, film it, um, film people uh, tackling uh, bighorn sheep. They do that thing where they corral them, they lure them under the nets, <laughs> they drop the nets down yeah. on top of them. And then everybody runs it like a hundred people run in and jump on top of the bighorn sheep. Uh, I went and filmed that when I was about seven months pregnant <laughs> and had to use a very long lens so that I wasn't too close to the action. Um, but things like that were just uh, part of my everyday life. And that's where I learned about North American model of conservation, how hunting and fishing license dollars pay for a lot of conservation. They pay for a lot of the work Colorado Parks and Wildlife does, other wildlife organizations. And uh, that's where I got exposed to the hunting world. Um, and I had no idea when I started working for the um, <laughs> hunting regulations uh, organization here in, CP uh, here in Colorado at CPW that I would ever, ever end up being a hunter. <laughs> like my friends are like, who are you? We do not know who you are. <laughs> um, but my coworkers all convinced me and I drank the Kool-Aid. Well, that's a cool, that's a cool story though. Let's talk about that. And, you know, I think your job, you just mentioned a lot of people would be like, wow, that'd be a really cool. It sounds like you had a lot of fun. You get to yeah. see a lot of neat, different things and experiences. 
And so that led you to kind of want to dip your toes in the water of hunting, becoming an an adult onset hunter. And then further, you agreed to film your journey and do a multi-part series and open that up for the whole world, which is a brave thing to do too. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah. So the series you're talking about is on YouTube and on Colorado Parks and Wildlife's YouTube channel. There's a playlist called My First Big Game Hunt, where I film myself going on, spoiler alert, My First Big Game Hunt. So <laughs> um, I the going back to the beginning of that, though, I grew up being I was raised to be absolutely terrified of firearms. Um, I, it's one of my biggest fears, like Tyra Banks has a fear of dolphins. Um, everybody's got a fear of something that ever, like some other people are like, are you serious? <laughs> and mine was that, uh, I just thought firearms would go off randomly. Um, and maybe they can, but that's not like, I, I just thought they all did that like, right, randomly. Um, and so I just was super, super terrified of being around guns. At Colorado Parks and Wildlife, though, uh, the majority of the employees are officers with guns on their hips. Um, There's actually people uh, like my partner, who now works for the hunter education section. You just like walk down the hallway at work and see someone carrying a rifle uh, because there's like some hunting novice hunting program or somebody needs it clean to do a demonstration or something like that, or it's evidence from uh, a poaching case. And so you'd just be walking around your, around the office hallways and people are just like walking around with rifles. And I was just like, so uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I would literally start crying. I had to transport a firearm um, for a photo shoot and I didn't want to touch even the case. It was in a case, unloaded, case was locked, and I didn't even want to touch the case to put it in my truck. And I had to go get somebody to to help me to do that. And so slowly over time, um, I realized I needed to work on that fear and work on chipping away at it if I wanted to like do my job without looking ridiculous. And to me, that looked like educating myself. So if I'm afraid of a gun going off, um, then I need to, I figured I needed to learn how to make one not go off. So the first thing I did was took hunter education and I wrote actually a blog piece for a CPW called a non-hunter takes hunter ed. And I talked in a bit about how I'm never, ever going to go hunting. And I just wanted to take it to learn about firearm safety. And I learned about so many other things and it's hunting's not, hunter ed's not just for hunters and how great it was. And at the end, I'm like, I'm never going to use this hunter ed card, but I'm going to keep it as a reminder (laughs) of all of the lessons I learned. But that class just got me thinking and got me thinking and thinking about hunting as more than just like shooting animals in the face, <laughs> and, which is kind of what I thought it was, um, even working at CPW. And uh, I started asking some officers I trusted to help me work down that fear even further, um, really go in depth with um, how to like make a fire, how to render a firearm unusable. And once I realized I had a lot more control over firearms than I thought, 
it was much easier for me to be more comfortable around them. So bolt action rifle, I just realized like I could just take the whole bolt out and put it in my pocket. And then there was no, no way a gun, <laughs> that gun could go off, right? Without the bolt in it. Um, there's so many types of firearms that you can render completely unusable. Um, I realized you can store, like I'm really terrified of accidents, firearm accidents. So I was thinking like, well, if I'm driving in a car and my fear is that a firearm could randomly go off, instead of having folks lecture me about the likeliness or unlikeliness and the probability of that happening, I could just take control and educate myself and be like, you know what? I could take that bolt out um, before I put the gun in the case. I could put the bolt in the glove compartment uh, and <laughs> drive around like that. So I know where the bolt is and I know, and I can reduce that fear. So instead of trying to quell my fear and get rid of it, I tried to work with it. And what ended up happening is a lot of officers told me that they never felt safer around a civilian with a firearm than with me. Cause I was constantly like, is your firearm loaded? Can you check with your eyes and your, <laughs> and my touch? Can you show me that it's unloaded? <laughs> Muscle control. And the more I started checking people I was with about things like muscle control, the more I realized that they actually wanted those reminders. There were a lot of times when I was out, I've been out on hunts, not hunting myself, but like filming them, where I would tell somebody who's a lot older and wiser and experienced than me, like, hey, yo, muzzle control, you just pointed that like almost five feet from my face. Like that was really close. <laughs> and they weren't even like close. And they would be like, thank you thank you. I felt a little bit too comfortable here. I shouldn't have done that. And once I realized people actually respected that and, and liked it and appreciated it and didn't just say, oh, there's silly crystal with her like silly fears of firearms. Like people actually like having me around being like, is your gun loaded? <laughs> um, can we check? Um, like that was so empowering. Like I have so much more control than I thought. And um then it turned out shooting animal wasn't that hard. Like the only barrier I had, it turned out, was my fear of firearms. Uh, I actually love sourcing my own food. Uh, even after I shot my first turkey, I decided I wanted to build a garden. <laughs> like I just, I love sourcing my own food. Like there is nothing about hunting that I don't like, except I'm terrified of firearms. So that's kind of my uh, yeah. foray into that. So oh, what did I didn't you hunt first? Hunt. <laughs> yeah. Tying no, that tell tell us what you hunted the first time. So I before my first big game hunt um, and that whole series, uh, I was going around asking folks what the what I should do first. I was like, I'm going to do a deer. And they're like, don't do a deer. You will cry. Um, and I was like, I'm going to cry over anything. Like a life is a life. Um, but somebody convinced me to take up turkey hunting. And so my first animal was a turkey. And the story behind that was just so weird that it kind of counteracted any negative feelings I had about it. So in a way, it was perfect. Um, and I just felt so proud of, of getting that meat and how much meat it ended up being. I was really surprised. Um, I thought there was going to be a lot less on that scrawny bird, but, um, and just looking at that meat in my, my fridge was 
incredible. It was incredible. Uh, so I am glad that I started with Turkey. Um, I do recommend that. <laughs> I think that was a great recommendation. They're kind of weird and funny looking. So, and then and so this was what three, four, five, five years ago, four or five years ago, I think is when mm-hmm. 2017 something. Four years ago now. Wow, four years ago now. Oh uh, my, maybe a little bit less than half. <laughs> yeah, my picture with that turkey is actually on the front of this year's uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife turkey brochure. Oh, really? I I have one yeah. of those, and I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I That's should probably take a look. I usually just grab them mindlessly when I'm at the hardware store or something, knowing I'll look at it later. What? There's finally a woman of color on the front, and you didn't even like notice it. Was I'm me. sorry. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm on the bottom right image with the turkey wearing a camo hoodie, um, all proud and whatnot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, kind of like, kind of like the guns, you just get used to grabbing them. I never notice anybody. I probably someone I know perfectly well could be the big main center image and I wouldn't even notice, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so adult onset hunter. And then, and then you took that even a step further. And, and one of the yeah. things we've touched base on a little bit and you've connected with Marsha is you became an Artemis leader too with our, with our Artemis program and, and talk about your engagement there and how you got involved. That was super interesting. Um, so uh, y'all approached me a year before I accepted. Um, I believe it was at partners conference a couple years back. Um, and yeah and i remember i said no at the time and i gave some reasons and this has a very happy ending in which i will be applauding artemis sportswomen um but i'm gonna be super honest at that time uh it felt kind of tokenizing as an offer from the other side i knew that was not the intent y'all are super cool right like i knew from talking to you all that you're down for the cause of diversifying hunting and angling, right? Um, That's the whole point of Artemis is uh, to diversify it specifically with women. Um, But at the time I hadn't seen too much um, on Instagram or uh, many other efforts to to actually have folks of color, um, women of color, uh, specifically on social media. And I told you all that, and I was like really open. I was like, well, where's the, you know, what are you doing for our communities? What's the compensation? If there's no um, uh, decision-making power, all of that stuff. Like as an ambassador, I was like, uh, kind of like a, why should I help you diversify <laughs> when it's not really going to do much for me in return? Like I have to do all this work and plan and stuff. Uh, as a woman of color, I get asked that all the time, right? It's not just because I'm uh, great at hunting, right? I'm not, um, but it's oftentimes to help diversify organizations. So I posed those questions very openly and y'all answered every single one and showed up. Like I, the, like I could not believe it when y'all did the leadership, um, team. Like I went back on and looked and you had done the work. Like, I was so impressed. Like, I just said, yes. Like, I think Marsha tried, like, talking more. And I was like, you can stop now. Like, I'm convinced. Like, you you listened and you acted. And yeah, we have to give Marsha most of the credit. 
Yeah, I don't know what your role was. I don't know, but um, I've never. As a background guy, Marsha deserves the credit. Okay, Marsha. I'll stop saying y'all and very specifically give credit to Marsha. Hi, Marsha. Thank you. Uh, But I've never been that direct and upfront and had somebody just come back with all of the boxes checked. Uh, That is something that right now uh, in the, the hunting and angling world is, as far as I can tell, unique to Artemis sports women. Like you actually listened um and heard and absorbed and changed um and you did something different or maybe you just kept doing what you were about to do and then i was the first person you approached but um that was incredible and to me i don't care if folks out there get it wrong uh i don't care if they only get it half right but people have to do something different to get different you have to do different you have to be different and so when y'all approach me oh sorry Marsha approached the second time uh, and I saw all of those changes. Artemis, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was just floored um, and I couldn't be prouder to be part of an organization that really hears women um, and specifically this woman of color. um, Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I mean, a, a shout out to Artemis too, and all that, that Marsh is accomplishing and Ashley and, and all the leaders and ambassadors. I mean, it's, it's taken an army, right? It's, it's a bunch of voices coming in, thinking about those things. And it's, it's a derivative of where we know hunting and fishing need to go, right? Yeah. We understand that like, if hunting and fishing are going to stay alive and the conservation elements that they bring, there's a lot of different kind of people that have not always been invited to the party. There's a lot mm-hmm. of different ways of thinking of hunting. I mean, your experience getting there, you know, like a lot of people grew up and their dad taught them and it just, they never thought once about it. But if you're going to bring in somebody new who's never done it or somebody who's never touched a firearm or there's got to be a lot of different entryways to, to getting into these things. And there's got to be different narratives right? There's so many different, some people come at it for food. Some people come at it for connection to the outdoors. Some people, you know, there's all different kinds of ways and exploring those is what, what we're about. I know it's what Artemis is about. And, yeah. uh, it, it's about getting more people to, it, even if they don't want to do it, to, to try to understand it a little and, and engage and engage in conservation and, and just connect and understand that there's a lot more to it than maybe, you know, the, the kind of singular narratives that have been, that have been portrayed, but I'll, I'll stop on my, <laughs> on my little yeah, diatribe well, that there. But. Perfectly with my work, for, um, developing inclusive journeys, because it was directly tied to my identity. Um, as I, you know, I'm a black woman, um, it directly ties into hunting while black, uh, and some experiences I had in the outdoors. Yeah. Um, and so for me, let's back that up. Sorry. Yes. Just real quick. <laughs> Cause I want to make sure we explain what that is, you know, oh, instead yeah. of just jumping right into it. So, oh, and then yeah. the green book concept too, cause I'm really fascinated by okay. the green book concept. Some folks may know about that. And I know part of that is what led to inclusive journey. So talk about that. I'll sure. kind of give us the origin story there. Yeah, so actually the origin story is the best place to start with describing what the platform is for. So uh, when I was actually out 
on my first big game hunt series available now on YouTube. <laughs> um, uh, my hunting mentor uh, could not really understand at the time why I would be so afraid to go hunting on public lands. Um, to he, He's one of those rare people who seeks to understand and listen and listen and listen and then thinks about it more and then listens more and then does different, right? I feel like y'all are on that vibe. Um, but uh, my hunting mentor is one of the rare folks out in the hunting field that I've met that that really um, tries to connect and understand. But, and, but most of the time I get trying to excuse. So um, at first when I was like, hey, I really don't want to go on public land. Like, can we get private land hookups? Like, I want to do this. Um, it was really hard to get across that even though it's hunting season, even though I'm wearing blaze orange, even though I'm wearing camo and have a hunting license in my pocket, that I could still be afraid of being seen with a firearm while black. And a lot of folks say things like, why does race, so why do you have to always put race into it? I'm like, cause I am always a race. <laughs> like, like I cannot navigate the world without it impacting me. Like that's not a thing that I have the luxury of dismissing. So even if someone's not just gonna come up to me randomly and be like, I'm racist, I'm threatening you. Uh, there are possibilities of scenarios with altercations out there, you know, like not realizing you're encroaching on someone else's space, um, you know, arguments over who ended up firing the shot if you're on public land, like crowded public land, a couple folks take a shot at the same time, not knowing another hunter is nearby. There's just so many different ways that um, things can go down and everyone is armed. So... <laughs> Not only am I trepidatious about going into a random restaurant and wondering if someone's going to mess with my food or treat me worse because of my skin, but now literally everyone I run into is armed and I'm still a little bit scared. And I have never had a racially based um, negative experience in hunting or fishing. I've had people stare at me, but... And that makes me uncomfortable, but I've never had an altercation. And so um, I, it's really hard to explain the anxiety that is the problem. It's not necessarily that I know something's going to happen. It's that if I'm right, that's life or death. Like <laughs> if I'm wrong, yay, we all go home. But if I'm right <laughs> about my, my maybe, my apprehension, I could save my own life, right? Nobody else is out there making sure I'm safe because I'm a brown woman in the outdoors holding a gun. Um, so I have to do that myself. And it was just really hard to, uh, to Mac kept saying like, where's the data? Where's the data? And I'm like, I can tell you 20 friends, I can pull up 20 friends right now in a group text and have them all tell you the same thing. And he's like, but where's the data? And I'm like, well, no one's collecting this data. No one is collecting data on negative experiences in the outdoors until they turn into a hate crime. And even then, those are grossly underreported until they become murders. And even then, those aren't often reported as hate crimes, right? So I know this stuff because I run in circles of people who have the exact same feelings of being scared in the outdoors because of what they look like or how they present. 
I know this. I don't need data. I've got a heart and ears um, and my own life. But my headache mentor kept saying, like, if you want to enact change, you need data or economic incentive. Data and economic incentive. And I was like, well, no one, like, no one is going to do these studies. And if they do, I'm not going to answer a study that asks me how comfortable or uncomfortable I feel about hunting. A, you're not compensating me for my time. And B, I don't believe you're going to do anything with the data. I just don't believe you. <laughs> I know how the systems work. So I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I could make that. I could make that system. <laughs> I could make a reporting system. Uh, so the I, I was thinking about how to help folks of marginalized identities um, kind of rate businesses and spaces uh, that are kind of like outdoorsy in nature. So anywhere from a national park to a restaurant you might visit um, on your way to a national park or the way out. Um, and how we could have people be able to leave reviews that are based on their identity, how they were treated based on their identity. Right now, if you go on Yelp and you say, this gun store um, wouldn't help me, like no one would help me. They kept serving white people and helping white people and they kept ignoring me. That's really hard to like right then and there prove that that's racially motivated. Um, and then B, uh, you know, those, those reviews are shut down. They um, shut down any race uh, or identity-based reviews until um, they're like under investigation. I'm using air quotes right now. Uh, and so we want to be a platform that says like, we hear you and we see you and that is important to know. Um, and then we kind of took, we kind of expanded it from my need for being able to cite, uh, identify safe and welcoming spaces while out hunting to kind of the entire outdoors experience. But then we're like, well, where does that end? So then we just kind of opened it up for all businesses and spaces uh, that happen to be points of interest on a map. So uh, yeah, that's what we're building. We're building a user-generated review platform where you can rate businesses and locations based on your identity and how you were treated there. Um, and then on the back end, we can provide businesses data and economic incentive. So we can say like, hey, 80% of the folks who came into your store and didn't buy anything were black and they said it's because um, they weren't being served, like they weren't being um, treated fairly, no one ever asked them if they could help them or something like that, so they left. Uh, here's some recommendations, economic incentive to um, do better. So. We, you could you could make a hundred thousand more dollars in the next six months if you <laughs> considered serving black people. <laughs> like, and after that, people are free to make their own business choices, customer service choices. But some folks just don't know that they're doing it. Um, unconscious bias is a thing everyone has. So some people might just not realize the impact they're having, which is why the data collection is important. Make sure they know, like, maybe that, that maybe you, Aaron, got treated the same exact way. Important to know. Probably not racism then, right? Just bad customer service in general. We recommend general customer service training. But if Black people and white people report vastly different experiences over hundreds of reviews, then you have data. Then we can make and build an economic incentive. Then we can create safer, more welcoming spaces, or let people know places that they should avoid to help keep them safe.
And that has been my work ever since that one day on a state wildlife area in Colorado. Um, and we are launching this summer. Very excited. Nice. And did you say, I can't remember, I, I called it the, the green digital green book type of thing, but I, I don't, I don't know if we told oh. kind of the origin story of the green book oh. for folks who don't know, would be, right. would be remiss so, not to say the, what that oh. was. Okay. Thank you. Uh, going back a little bit, one of the things that I was thinking about is like, has somebody already done this? Has somebody already collected data on safe spaces for people of marginalized identities? And then I had the, the green book came into mind. It was called the Negro Motorist Travel Guide. And it was made by Victor H. Green, who was a postal worker in Harlem, New York. Um, and he it launched in 1936 uh, and finished publication in 66, 67 edition. Um, that was after the Civil Rights Act passed and segregation was no longer allowed. I'm coming back to that. Uh, but back in the day, Black travelers, Black people weren't allowed to travel. Um, they often pretended to be chauffeurs, uh, carried chauffeur hats, um, and uh, would just pretend to be going to pick up their boss uh, if they did travel. Um, there are stories that are documented of Black men um, driving, keeping a uh, dry official chauffeur's hat on the dashboard and having their wife in the back and saying like, oh, this is actually the children's nanny um, and we are going to their vacation home, right? And then they would just say where they were going, but they would have to like lie and say what they were doing because it was not allowed to, for Black folks to travel. And also Black folks didn't have the means to travel not until uh, Detroit and some other cities started hiring Black uh, factory workers, paying them a, a real wage. Um, they weren't having to share a crop anymore. So they traveled to, excuse me. So they traveled to big cities and they uh, started working in these factories. And then once they did that, they were actually able to afford cars and they had days off. And for like the first time in modern American history, um, Black people could work and work towards a leisure goal, work towards a goal of leisure. And so when that happened, um, Black folks wanted to start taking vacations, but traveling was still really dangerous. Um, there are, by the way, there are still sundown towns. There are still towns where if you are Black or person of color and you go in after sundown, you will be run out of town. So Victor Green, um, this postal worker from Harlem started collecting postcards. People would send him postcards of safe places to stop for gas, safe places to stop for rest. Um, you could be murdered for stopping to go to the bathroom on the side of a highway uh, if you're in the middle of nowhere um, and the nearest bathroom said whites only. If you tried to go to the bathroom on the side of the road or pull over, you could legitimately just like be murdered with no consequences. Um, apparently you could still be murdered with no consequences today, but not for going to the bathroom on the side of the road um, as commonly accepted as that was at the time. Um, so safe places to, to stop and rest. And 
uh, he ended up compiling a booklet that was distributed. You could buy for five cents, 10 cents, 25 cents um, as inflation grew, but black motorists would carry it with them because their lives would literally depend on it. My business partner's father, um, they live in a multi-generational household still with us. He remembers having to travel with the green book so that they didn't stop in the wrong spot and never return home. And today, unfortunately, that is still a thing. That is still a thing in communities of color, in the queer community. Um, like it is still a thing <laughs> that you can go outdoors and fear for your life and maybe not come home. Uh, we like to think that it ended with segregation, but if anything, like it just went underground. Um, and it's not, it's not as overt anymore. Uh, it's not as obvious. It's not as clear cut. Um, and, you know, like to be able to say that the shootings of the um, Asian women in the um, nail salon and massage parlors, like was not racially motivated, like to think that that could not be classified as a hate crime, right? That's the reason this type of of thing is needed is because uh, the rules of the game are changing, but the consequences are still just as real. And it's not that I'm not that everywhere is racist. It's not that everywhere is filled with bigots. It's that like I'm uncomfortable and would like to know from my peers if this place is safe to go into, if I will be served um, appropriately, if I, if I will be treated with kindness, or if I'm going to be run off. That has happened to me. This all this stuff happens to me all the time, all the time. And it doesn't matter what I'm wearing. It doesn't matter how professional I look. Uh, it still happens to me all the time. And people think that these are one-off things. And we are here to create a platform to demonstrate, like Victor Green did, the original printed copy of the Green Book. Um, we're here to build a modern version of that so that we can collect these stories, collect these experiences and show that it's not just me. It's not just that one time. That person wasn't just having a bad day. That these are patterns. These are things that we can, we can collect data on this. We can incentivize folks to spend their money somewhere else. Um, you know, uh, my partner is white dude and he's saying like, you know, I want to use the app because I don't know uh, if this place would treat you differently if you were with me or if I'm just getting good treatment because I happen to be white. He would want to know and then change the places he does business and where, where he spends his money. And so when the outdoors community, the hunting, angling, hiking, uh, rock climbing, cycling communities all say that they're ready to do something, but then they don't actually do anything, we're going to hold folks accountable. Um, a lot of people have asked us about can cancel culture. Um, and we want to give folks every, every possibility to change and grow. We want to provide resources, recommendations, and opportunities for growth. None of us are perfect. At the end of the day, if they don't want to do that, there is a culture of accountability. 
that comes with living in a free society where we can choose where we spend our dollars. <laughs> that's not cancel culture, that's culture of accountability. And so we feel it's very important. We would wanna be given, I wanna be given a chance to change and grow. I'm not perfect. So we wanna give businesses that as well and, and land management um, organizations that opportunity as well. But like after that, <laughs> like people will be able to spend their dollars and and talk with their wallet. So, sure, talk talk about that interface with the outdoors because it, you know I think this extends beyond that for sure. But what do you what are you seeing in the outdoors? I mean, is, is there a you know it, on public lands? It's hard to say. I mean, is it getting down to something like identifying a county you might go to or a you know? It, it, outfitters or what what would it be you know in that in that context yeah everything is on the table um we didn't know a line to stop at if we're going on a, it's designed around the same concept as the original green book the print version outdoorsy travel um it was inspired by me wanting a resource when i'm out hunting in places that i've never been to um and i don't know the vibe of um but where does that stop, right? If I'm on a hunt, I need to go to a firearm store, get some ammo. I always go to Walmart <laughs> on my way out because, you know, there's nothing like a last minute few hundred dollars of purchases that <laughs> on your way. I don't know if anybody else does that, but every time I go out hunting, I pack everything, stop at Walmart and somehow end up spending like $300 on, on like last minute things um, that I probably don't need. And then, um, you know, restaurants, uh, bathrooms on the way, if somebody is transgender um, or just is is uncomfortable uh, with a bathroom situation or has a disability and needs a bathroom with accessible accommodations, right? They need a rest area that doesn't just have stairs, has a ramp. So a wide range of things for a wide range of folks. Um, there's so many things that you can do on that hunting trip, on that rock climbing trip. Uh, maybe you need a dentist, uh, you know, <laughs> you want, you're going skiing, you knock out a tooth um, and you have to go to a dentist. So we couldn't really think of a line to stop at for businesses that we can serve. And so, and we also couldn't think of a line to stop out for people that we serve. We want everybody to be able to see themselves um, on our platform somewhere. That's everybody, even you, Aaron. Um, and uh, so we're <laughs> hoping that people just like rate businesses, rate businesses, rate businesses, so we can collect that data and then give it back to the businesses to make sure that they have as much information as possible. Because right now, sounds weird to say, no one is collecting this type of information. No one. <laughs> um, and so anywhere, really. really? anywhere. <laughs> well, good. And I'm glad you said too, that there, there's a kind of an, a chance for redemption, if you will. I, I love, I think America loves redemption stories, right? I, I always love the story where someone did something wrong or acted inappropriately or whatever, and then they learned and they got the chance yeah. to kind of be, you know, maybe reformed is too big of a word, but you know, uh, I, I think, down in the doldrums of someone doing something wrong and then they're kind of banished there forever. I don't like the way that looks for the future of that person or their family or, you know, as much as some people do terrible things that probably shouldn't be. 
uh, redeemed. But the same at the same note, I think there's a lot of things that we're learning as a society right now where that are on the fringes of things that maybe they didn't quite know that was wrong and they get the opportunity to go, oh, you know, maybe now I learned something and I'm better for it. And then they don't pass down that bad habit. To, to their next of kin, you know, I, I, most, most hate and stuff like that in my experience is learned, right? It's yeah. somebody showed them that they didn't just pop up and hate people. Like you, you can't find a child on earth that just hates the next child over for no reason. You know, they don't. Um, and so that's learned and, and you can learn the opposite of that too, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And so I like, I like that opportunity. I like that you're acknowledging that too, because it's a, it's a weird time right now. Uh, you know, with, with some of the stuff when people just feel so sensitive about talking about things, I think that gives some people, other people, the opportunity to open up and talk about other issues and and get somewhere. So I I appreciate that. What's the, what's the number one reason you think it's important to do this right now? You know, like Mm -hmm. what, what are you really hoping that this achieves when you look up at the end of the day and go, boy, this, this worked, what would that look like? my daughter not having to use the app herself when she grows up. Um, I think that this work is uh, generational and that's not a reality. We're never going to finish the race uh, of racism. We're never going to finish the race of oppression. If someday I am treated totally the same as you, Aaron, going into a store, um, we're going to find another group to oppress. Well, it's just going to happen, human nature. But uh, I really hope, my hope would be that we can reset how folks think about diversity and inclusion and what a welcoming space is. I'm hoping that we can reset what people think of as a safe and welcoming space. I hope we can reset what it means to give somebody a chance to learn and grow. And I hope we can reset what it means to take critical feedback um, and and believe people like me when I say like, y'all, like, <laughs> trust me, um, like this just happened. So in a perfect world, uh, my daughter who turns three next, next month wouldn't have to use this app um, because we've provided enough data we've provided enough economic incentive to demonstrate that there is profitability profitability in inclusion like i am not just a bleeding heart liberal over here i'm also um excellent at marketing i'm also business oriented and i just i just think that you know telling people my sob stories over and over again don't do anything but like kind of help me process. Like I'm not really changing anything. Uh, The stories need to be heard, but I think my hunting mentor was absolutely right until you can demonstrate with data and talk and and change with economic incentive. uh, It just ends up being a sad story Crystal told once, you know, Um, nothing actually changed changes uh, people at this point. Everyone's so dug into their own experience. But I just hope we can show that multiple things can be true at once. You can be well-intentioned and I can have a bad experience. Those things can be true at the same time. Like, I feel like Artemis understood that um, when they approached me the first time. Like, you all can 
be or Marsha can be well intended, but still it's not perfect scenario <laughs> for me. And then she listened and then uh, changed, right? And that's what it took was, um, you know, people who are humble enough to hear something other than what they want to hear, something other than, um, you know, thank you, you're amazing, right? And then grow. And when that happens, you best believe I'm going to be Artemis's like, <laughs> best hype woman ever, right? <laughs> like, that's that story is much more powerful than an organization that's, um, you know, been trying a little bit this whole time, but not really doing much besides saying they're woke, I would much rather have businesses demonstrate their capabilities to to hear and change so that I can trust that the cycle, the flywheel is going to keep going and my daughter won't have to log into the app once. That That's my number one goal. <laughs> Good. So who do you think or what entities do you think are doing the best job at this? Uh, well, obviously, Artemis, sportswoman, uh, but I never felt particularly oppressed, but that's great because y'all changed, <laughs> like Marcia did something before I felt oppressed. So that's great. Um, and um, so really good organizations at this. Um, I have, oh, I don't know if I can say this. I have a client <laughs> that I do training for right now. It is a performing arts client um performing arts center and they really walk the walk um they they really are if they don't have people of marginalized identities to uh volunteer their time and labor to um help them shift direction to be more inclusive um they will hire a consultant they'll hire a consultant from that demographic. And that's how they ended up with me as a consultant. Um, so folks that organizations that really don't try to solve communities problems, but try to ask what the solutions they need and plan for are, um, and then help come in and support those. So um, none of this needs to be the wheel doesn't need to be reinvented um, on any of this uh like the like one of the things i learned about the black hunting community is like organizations don't need to come in and start from scratch and be like hey we're gonna throw in some black hunting programming what you can do is go to the black hunting community which exists and is organized already uh doing lots of programs already and coming in and saying how can we help you achieve your goals what resources are you missing that we have um but also just doing something for them upfront. Um, so there's an organization, Fat Tire, did this for Inclusive Journeys. They gave us money upfront. They saw us asking for money. They gave us a giant check. Um, and then they said, let us know what else we can do to support you. Uh, what resources are you missing to execute the dreams we know you have planned out, right? Uh, there's a lot of organizations trying to solve every problem for, you know, different communities. And it's like, if Artemis Sports Women wants to help women get outdoors, you ask women for the solutions, right? <laughs> like, that's a that's a no brainer. So if you're trying to help diversify with like skin color, for example, um, the outdoors, you need to ask people of color uh, what the solutions they're already coming up with are and where 
you as a business can fit in. Um, same with any business customer service role. If you think about everything from a customer service angle first, you don't provide the solution that you think is best for the customer. You find out what the customer wants and then how you can provide that solution. So in any of this work, I would just say like any business organization that understands they don't need to reinvent the wheel. We're already busy doing this. We're already busy. You know, <laughs> we're not helpless out here. Um, like we, we have solutions. We are under resourced. We are underrepresented. Uh, we're not helpless. So recognizing that first and then being like showing up to the party um, and being like, hey, I can go to the store real quick and get something else. What do you need? That's what that's what I need. <laughs> that's what we all need. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, and kind of along those same lines, I asked you the one one reason it's important to call this out and work on it, but how about the one thing someone could do that's kind of maybe naive to some of this or, you know, wants to help, but doesn't know how to engage or, you know, maybe particularly from the sporting community. I mean, this is a, we speak mostly to hunters and anglers and I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a topic, you know, people are starting to talk about this more, but in the hunting and angling space, what do you think people can do to, to help move the needle? Yeah, it might seem instinctual uh, based on what I just said to go out and ask those communities what you can do, right? That's really labor intensive. When you, if there's an organization like Hunters of Color, uh, like that is out there being like, hey, um, we're here to chat, we're here to help. Like, you know, they've got great responses um, when people slide into their DMs. That's really labor intensive though. Every time we talk about this stuff, it's pulling up our own trauma. So right now I'm super happy to be on this podcast, but there's gonna be a toll later on the back end. Um, it's much more trauma invoking for me than it is for you. Um, but I do it because people need to hear this stuff. So I would hesitate to ask random individuals from those communities um, and instead, uh, hit up organize communities that are already organized. But the, before you do that, I would say white people need to talk to other white people. Able-bodied folks need to talk to other able-bodied folks. Straight folks need to talk to other straight folks uh, before going and asking those communities um, for anything, before engaging with them. Um, figuring it out, talking through your own issues, your own biases, your own question about what terms to use. Every single thing I teach about in a diversity training is easily Googleable. Google, Google, Googleable? Oh, please keep that in there. Um, <laughs> you can Google it. Um, <laughs> I just organize it and present it, right? This stuff is not rocket science. If you're confused about Latinx versus Latino or Latino versus Hispanic, you can Google that. Like, just Google it first. If you're if you're like, I don't know how to reach out to communities of color. Do we say communities of color? Do we say BIPOC? Do we say African-American? Do we say black? You can Google that. Like there's, and then look at more than one resource and then figure out how the communities themselves want to, to be referred to, right? So, work it out on your own talk to other people in that like mainstream normative so if you're aaron if you're thinking about reaching out to black folks or a black organization 
talk it over with another white person first. Talk out your problem. Like, I don't know if I should say black. Like, you can all say black. It's great. But figure it out with somebody else first um, and then in, and then begin to engage. And then if you have to process something, maybe somebody called you out. Hey, Aaron, we don't like to be called the blacks. All right, come on. Process that with another white person. <laughs> don't try to process it with us. Uh, we've had to spend our whole lives helping white people understand microaggressions. And it's really, we never come out on the good end of it. So that's what I would ask is do your background work and your processing work with other people in that fully represented community, um, whether that be white, um, fully able, like able-bodied, um, you know, have cis hetero community, whatever that is. Okay. Well, I know you got to go here soon. We're getting close to our time. I'll ask you one more question, a little bit unrelated, but just kind of what your what your fall plans are for the hunting season. <gasps> and then we'll let you go. <laughs> okay, I'm so excited. So last year I embarked on my first elk hunt. Um, I swore I was never going to shoot an elk because... Um, yeah, I just... They're so beautiful. And... <laughs> Then I got kind of a little bit uh, bloodthirsty or actually meat for my table thirsty. Uh, and I decided to go out. So um, I will be going to an undisclosed unit uh, for my second time last year. <laughs> I wasn't um, asking for unit to be clear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I totally forgot the unit number. Can't, can't seem to remember right now. Unfortunately, I'll definitely hit you up with that information later. Uh-uh. Um, but I have a wonderful spot. And last year, I just was not positioned right in the mornings. Um, spent way too long trying to get out of my sleeping bag. I almost froze. Like, I'm pretty sure I had mild hypothermia. Do not, okay, on different podcasts, do not ever put a space blanket on the outside of a sleeping bag. Do not ever do that. Anyone who's gotten this far in this interview, do not do that. Science. It's a thing. Condensation will come back down on your sleeping bag and absolutely soak you and then freeze into a sleeping bag popsicle, which happened to me. So I just kept getting up a little too late, um, but we ended up just like chasing them in, in loops. We could tell they'd just been where we were, just been where they were. So I'm going back, slightly different strategy this time. Uh, and then probably another Eastern Plains deer hunt as well. Well, good. That sounds fun. Good luck. I hope maybe you can, I'm sure you've had elk meat at this point, but it's, yes. it's, it's the, it's <laughs> it the goods. So good. It's the best. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, I so appreciate your time. I appreciate your vulnerability, just being willing to share your story and, and, and the work you're doing. And, you know, just, I love people who try to make the world a better place. And, uh, you know, I love it when it interfaces with the work we do and getting outdoors think the thing that I love more than anything is getting people outdoors and showing them the beauty and the awesomeness of that and how it can just change your life. And I think you're, you're definitely helping along those lines. So thank you so much. You want to leave us with any, any parting shots as we go? 
Uh, I could leave with a bunch, but I just want to thank you so much. Um, giving platforms to folks, um, allowing the openness for me to say all that stuff um, and to get my perspective out there is really important. And that's also one of the things that uh, anyone who wants to engage in allyship work can do is just literally give your microphone over to someone and uh, let them go. And I appreciate so much this time um, and what Artemis has has offered. Um, and it is wonderful to see Artemis. Uh, I keep talking about Artemis. I know you're not Artemis, but like, <laughs> uh, I always identify you as, like, as the same, <laughs> one and the same. But um, through you, I am introduced to Artemis and being able to be part of that team and feel that sense of like, oh, we hear you. Like, yeah, we hear you. Um, which I have had every single time I've met with Marsha um, is, is wonderful. People don't need to be perfect. Uh, we just need to do literally anything, <laughs> like anything. And I just really appreciate that y'all are doing everything. Um, including handing over your literal microphones um, um, and uh, introducing me to partner organizations, umbrella organizations, um, and networks. It's it's incredible. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, and thank you. And with that, we'll see you on the mountain, huh? Oh, yeah. Maybe. Okay. Okay. See you later. Right. We are NWF Outdoors. <laughs> <laughs>